Hello, and welcome back to The Cine Skinny. It's a podcast all about films. I'm Peter Simpson, I'm joined by Jamie Dunn. Hello. And Anahit Berus. Hello. This episode is part two of our Films of 2021 roundup, in which our opinions get more strident and excitable. Uh, Anahit and Jamie wax lyrical about the latest from Jane Campion and Kelly Reichardt, while I openly wish that I was as cool as an eight-year-old French child. You can find part one of this two-part Best of 2021 episode in your podcast feeds just now. If you like what you hear, then share the good word on socials and leave us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts. But for now, we're off to the Old West to meet a very special cow. We'll get on to in a second, but first things first. First cow, Jamie, what did you think of the cow film? One of the many cow films we've been having these days. Yeah, lots of animal films. There was Pig was on the list as well. There's lots that you could be, you know, you get a whole Christmas dinner, pretty much. There's a lamb, <laughs> a film called Lamb was out recently. What's going on? Um, but yeah, um, off the animals. Uh, this is my favorite. This is my favorite film of the year, basically. Um, and I would probably say Kelly Wright might be my favorite filmmaker working. You know, I think she just doesn't miss. Like our films are all great. And I think what I love about our films is, is they're just so precise and patient and they usually hinge on like these tiny little grace notes or moments of human connection and understanding. And I always appreciate her total confidence in making films like that and not compromising. So like she, she, she'll lead you along and then it'll just the film will turn on like the tiniest moment and it's just so moving to watch. Um, but this film, it's set in 1920s Oregon. So basically kind of frontier times. And then this kind of harsh world it kind of follows you know that's the background but the kind of center of the film is this kind of sweet tender friendship which forms between a mild-mannered cook um called cookie who works for this kind of fur trapping outfit and this kind of itinerant worker from china called king lu and it's basically how these two sweet guys who should not really be in this world you know they're not made for frontier times where everything's so cutthroat and heartless you know they they sort of come together and sort of make a friendship because basically they're in such this kind of hostile environment um, and eventually they can decide to be business partners and the film follows them with a kind of crazy get rich quick scheme where they're going to sell oily cakes to the front frontiermen who have got all this gold money um, they want to spend but there's nothing to spend it on because if you live out in the wilderness in Oregon in 1920 there's no you know everything's crap and horrible so they make this these delightful little um beautiful cakes for them to eat and, and they start to make loads of money but the trick is to get these cakes they have to steal milk from uh toby jones's character and toby jones is the kind of settlement head this english guy who has shipped over this cow from the homeland um to make his milk for his tea um but unbeknown to him these two kind of friends are stealing his milk to do this little business so it's kind of like a a fun caper, but there's a kind of underlying tension because Toby Jones is, is evil, and we know if he finds out what they're doing, there'll be dire consequences. So it's so it's like a thriller, really, but a very gentle, slow-paced thriller, um, and it's also very funny. It's, it's dealing with all Kelly Reichardt's kind of like main preoccupations, really. She's like, you know, it's about nature um, and sort of humans' disregard for nature, like she did in Night Moves. It's about people living. Are people forced to live like very kind of meager um, existence because of lack of employment, like in Wendy and Lucy? It's obviously set in the Old West, um, like Meat's Cut Off, and she's sort of upending a lot of the cliches of the Western here. 
Um, the fact that she centred on two kind of very soft, male-mannered guys is very telling. And it's, it's a kind of, I guess it's a bit of a friendship and it's a, bit, a kind of bromance, um, a bit like Old Joy. So it's like it's like a kind of film that is, is a culmination of all the films, really. And it's about the American dream and about how it's it was as unattainable back in 19, sorry, 1820 as it is now, but you still need friendship and you still need sort of, you know, a companionship to kind of get through <laughs> this shit life, basically. Um, so, Annie, I don't know if you saw Frostcow. I did. I saw it quite a while ago. Um, I think almost a year ago now. I think the thing that I found the most interesting about it was its engagement with the Western genre and with this idea of being on the frontier and being quote-unquote pioneers um, and the way that she's reforming a lot of the tropes of that genre um, there was a really interesting article on BBC Culture, I think when Power of the Dog, which we will hopefully be talking about, um, came out that was talking about this new wave of women directors that are doing kind of Western films. And obviously of that, you had um, like Chloe Zhao's The Rider and all of her films, and then First Cow as well. And yeah, kind of thinking about the Western traditionally as this very sort of masculine genre and this genre that is like very much about getting ahead and like forging new ground and the way that she both problematizes that and also shows this sort of gentler side of it, like you were saying, that sort of companionship and the intimacy between these two men that are models of masculinity that you just don't see in the genre at all. It's just, yeah, it was very, it, it made it really moving, I think, because it doesn't feel like it's a story of, America and America's founding that you hear a lot. It's almost like a queer story as well. Like it's not, it's not mm-hmm. explicit, but it's very much uh, underlying, and that's that happens a lot in uh, Keller Eric Hart's films as well. There's always a kind of queer yeah. uh, under underlying, uh, uh, you know, certain moments of queer connection. Um, yeah. But there's a great, my favorite scene of the whole year as well is the scene where King Lou invites Cookie back to his shack, and what happens? They just instantly form a little family you know like instantly cookie starts tidying up because uh, like king lou's made a mess and he's like he just starts sweeping the floor and then you see king lou in the background sort of chopping wood and it's just in miniature the whole film is plays out in one scene and it's about sort of yeah you need people in your life to survive like surviving on your own is horrible getting through a capitalist society is horrible having to like scrape mm. past with nothing but, you know, if you've got someone to do it with, it's not too bad. And I think that's just a lovely message for all of us, that hmm. this world is terrible, but if you can find some friends to do it with, it's, it's not it's not that bad. And I suppose uh, your world being terrible, but having some friends makes it not better, but uh, less intolerable, is one of the central things in that, Kate, that I thought about Limbo, which yeah. is Ben Sharrock's film about a group of... Uh, refugees who are basically sent off to a fictional Scottish island and kind of left to their own devices and it deals a lot with how those characters kind of form these groups of like kind of friendship bonds and like try to support each other but also there's a lot of stuff in there about what people in that situation have had to leave behind in order to be put in this new and also dire situation. 
Yeah, and I think one of the things that I think, Jamie, you talked about this when it came out, um, is how this... So this is a film set in Scotland by a Scottish filmmaker, and it really doesn't look or behave like what you would expect from the phrase film set in Scotland made by a Scottish filmmaker. Yeah, no, totally. Um, yeah, Ben Shag's a really interesting model for Scottish filmmaking, actually, because usually, like you say, it's... Uh, Scottish film is very much connected to British film in that we follow this kind of British kitchen sink realist tradition. Um, but Ben Shark has instantly, he's only made two films and he's instantly got his own uh, style, which is just as distinct as somebody like Wes Anderson. Actually, I think there's a lot of links between him and Wes Anderson, actually. They're both interested in really precise filmmaking. Um, he always puts his characters at the centre of the frame and he likes to use front-on point of view shots as well um, and his use of colour is very precise but, but yeah I was also surprised it's a film about the refugee um, existence or, 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 uh, which is not it's, it's not sort of about being it's not it's not sort of the, the cliche of, of being a refugee you know so often refugee stories are about trying to travel here and the kind of um, the terrible journeys and the kind of exploitation that happens but it's actually quite refreshing to see the kind of story about the bureaucracy of being a refugee and how once you arrive at your destination, you're still not here because you're constantly scared about being sent back, you know, and you have to go through this horrible experience of waiting for Priti Patel's home office to decide if you can make a home here, you know, and that's what the film's about. It's about sort of waiting, really. And that's, the, you know, obviously limbo of the title. And it's, yeah, it's, uh, well, it's, it's, it's interesting because... I've totally lost my, my train of thought. If anyone wants to jump in, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I can jump in. Because um, yeah. you were talking about like him being a Scottish filmmaker and it being so different from what we think of as Scottish filmmaking. And I think that's partly because he really feels like he's working within a Middle Eastern tradition. And he's talked about this, I think, about how he's very influenced by Middle Eastern cinema. And um, Elias Suleiman's, who's a Palestinian filmmaker, his new film, It Must Be Heaven, also came out this year. I think it was made a couple of years ago, but it just got a UK release or something. And seeing them, because they were released within a few weeks of each other, I think, this summer, and seeing them together, the style is so similar in terms of, like you say, the way that he blocks, the way that he frames, this kind of constant use of irony throughout, and that's where his humour is so deadpan. And yeah, so he really feels like he's working within that tradition he's building off of that but it also feels like a very British film in terms of its subject matter and it feels very angry and maybe it's just that I feel very angry every time I watch it but for like what is ostensibly a comedy it is really devastatingly sad what these characters have to go through like you say it is a film about bureaucracy but it's about the violence of bureaucracy like it's not kind of removed or at a distance or this kind of quite like boring routine thing that you have to do it is about how this bureaucracy that is shoring up the hostile environment works to make people's lives miserable and to make it so that they don't feel at home and it's actively trying to make them feel like they don't feel at home and yeah I've seen it three times now and every time I pretty much start crying immediately because it just speaks I think to the current situation, the kind of politics that we're living in at the moment. And it's very unflinching in that. 
I will also say, because uh, Ben Sharp obviously is incredible and what he does with it is incredible, uh, but Amir El Mastri, who plays uh, the main character Omar, is so perfect. He just has such a soulful gaze. So much of what he does is not really speaking. Like he's just constantly looking and like you say, constantly waiting. And he does it with such both sweetness and also sadness at the same time that, yeah, the film, I think, really, it's such a stylistic film. And it's definitely not one that's only held up by its performances, but it's put that lead performance really anchors it, I think. Yeah, and I think it's that it's the combination of the two things that you've each spoken about, that because often, like, visually, characters are so central in the frame, and his performance is so engrossing it does mm. co- it pulls you back into like the the premise like the point and the themes of the film yeah and like in a really interesting way that like he has such yeah there's so much kind of pathos just in looking at him in his kind of bright blue puffy jacket yeah i was gonna say he's also oh, no, just sorry, looking, i was gonna say he's also looking down the camera as well so that, that direct it's the directness of it. It's the, the fact he's looking at you. And I guess that's the thing. We have to look back and say, well, this is a problem mm. that we all, this is all our responsibility. We all are responsible for people like Amir, uh, uh, or Omar stuck on islands or stuck on in sort of centres mm. where they're waiting indefinitely. And it's a cruel sort of system that, you know, we are all responsible for, you know, like uh, this government has been in power for years and we haven't been voted out, even though we know they, they, they uh, do this. So, yeah, that, that, it's that kind of direct cinema that makes it so um, powerful. That kind of, it's, uh, you know, El Mastery looking down the camera into your eyes um, that makes it something yeah. so shocking. And again, another film that takes, um, yeah, takes experiences of a very, very marginalised group in society and doesn't present them in a way where it's like these plucky guys are about to find out that coming to Britain isn't what they expected it's like no this is rubbish like it's it's rainy and snowy all the time we're being just left here to until we eventually get a phone call one day and yeah it doesn't it's it has humor within it but it does have that edge that says like this is a story about people trying to get by in a really dreadful situation um, and then the number one film on this list is possibly the, I don't know, it's like, it's the film that I saw last year that is maybe like the most filmy film. the mo- It's the most filmy film of all the films, which is Petit Maman. So the premise of the film is that a woman's mother has passed away. So her and her partner and their eight-year-old girl go to the grandmother's house to tidy it up. And the eight-year-old goes off to play in the woods that our mother used to play in and bumps into another eight-year-old who is her mother as an eight-year-old. And I think the thing that is really great about this film is it does an absolutely amazing job of just telling a story and then creating the conditions in the filmmaking to just let you go along with it. There's very little in the way of trying to like convince you other than just through the storytelling and the performances that this is the reality that you live in where someone can go into the garden and bump into 
someone who in purely metaphysical terms shouldn't be there and then it grows into a kind of like friendship between these two these two young girls who sort of know that their friendship is on the clock and they're kind of coming to understand things about one another again in a way that yeah from a purely kind of like i'm a film discourse person on the internet this shouldn't make sense this woman's not the mother she's a girl this is madness but yeah i think that like the way that it presents its story and like the performances by the two child leads are incredible they're just so cool yeah. i wish i was that yeah. cool as an eight-year-old wish i was that cool now to be honest <laughs> Yeah, they are so good. And they're so natural together as well. And I think going back to what you were saying about, was it you? Was it Jamie? About how to direct a child star? Yeah, it was Jamie because it was about Belfast. Um, I think this is another uh, real example of how you should direct child stars. And that the answer to that is that you shouldn't over-direct them. And I think she really relies on their natural connection and she really relies on just creating a rhythm and an environment where they can live in and be in together rather than like trying to get them to hit all of these like plot points and emotion points all of the time um yeah I just think I just think she's so good I love her so much (laughs) like all of her films are like these incredible exercises in intimacy and I think with this one you can see it because like you say it is ostensibly a time travel film it's ostensibly a genre film but she's really not interested in it as like this kind of science fictiony device and so the way that she kind of does the whole time travel thing is through um space and it's through well this is the house that they're kind of both living in in different times and they pass through it with each other and alone and it's about like well how can you be together with someone in one place And that's what the time travel becomes about rather than like, oh, like I have a DeLorean and I'm going to somehow get from one place one time to another. And I just don't really know if there's anyone else that is doing it like her really at all. Like she's just so, she's so good. She's so good. I know. (laughs) That's all I have to say. I just feel in awe. I think if I I was ever teaching a class to... um budding filmmakers and you know how young filmmakers say oh it's so hard to make films nowadays because i don't have any money this is it shows you how you can take a small idea a tight it's basically a time travel movie and make it on a i mean it must have cost like 10 pence to make this film it's like so there's not there's nothing uh, fancier no spa, no special effects it's very simple it's it's got one location basically a garden and a house um yeah. and, and i love how they keep ambiguous this could be a child's child's daydream for all we know, for most of the film, um, and it and it is a kind of I think it is a daydream that people have. I'd love to meet my parents at my age and see what they're like and play with them and have fun. And and the film, most of the film is just it does that is it's it's enjoying two generations meeting at the same eye level and watching them have fun together. You know, they build forts, they play out a goofy murder mystery play, which is my favourite scenes. For some reason, they just act this weird Agatha Christie style murder. And they play all the characters, and it's hilarious. It's so funny, so sweet. But again, it's one of these films that the, the emotion creeps up on you because you know it's, it is about grief. It's about it's about a mother and a daughter dealing with losing their grandmother. Basically, that's kind of the story, and it's it's their connection um, in the middle, uh, how they how they meet, uh, you know, in the middle about that. Um, so that's what I loved. I loved how 
it's just it's so simple but so complex at the same time. There's like the the, the filmmaking and stories are really simple, but the emotions bubbling around are so deep and so complex. And these young girls give such wise performances. You know, it's like the it's the it's the wisdom of childhood that you don't really get to see. You know, the the thing the thing I think Siama understands is that kids are goofy and they like to play games and and they like to have fun, but they are actually really perceptive as well. And that's the thing she treats yeah. the kids like not like adults but she treats them with a lot of respect and she she treats their emotions with respect you know and i think that's what makes the film so powerful there's this one line in this um which i think is like the two little girls are talking and the kind of mother says well like you didn't invent my sadness and i just think it's such a simple and direct way of speaking to, I think like the key tension often within motherhood which is how are you both someone's mother but your own person and how are your emotions both completely tied up in someone else but also completely your own and to kind of be able to say that in this one line like you say between these two little wise girls I think is incredible like, it's just incredible and one other thing that this film does is it does all of this in one hour and 12 minutes truly the dream (laughs) which is like that is in a way like it's almost more kind of bizarre and unexpected to say that a film can tell an entire full story and not take three hours to do it than it is to say that these uh these children are potentially time traveling but also potentially daydreaming more so basically so far on this podcast we like prickly films that are very direct but also fun short and kind of fantastical yes short is really an underrated quality yeah. <laughs> no i think films should be the length they should be so so this film should be 70 odd minutes and then the hamaguchi film should be three hours that's that's my theory films should be the yeah, length. yeah you have to be. justify your length yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. But you do get bonus points for being able to watch a film in an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, you could watch this twice in terms, you know, by the time you could watch Sp- <laughs> Spider-Man Come Home, whatever it's called. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's not called that. <laughs> no. no way home. He's close. He's close. Home improvements. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's the top ten. Shiva Baby, French Dispatch, Summer of Soul, Minari... Drive My Car, The Green Knight, Titan, First Cow, Limbo, Petty Mama. Watch them all, they're all very good. But now, in the spirit of podcasts, relitigating arguments that have already been settled, let's talk about <laughs> a film let's talk about a film that should have been on this list. Okay, I'm gonna talk about this film. Um, I'm gonna start because I fucking love this film so <laughs> much. Um, so it is Jane Campion's The Power of the Dog. Um, it absolutely should have made our top two, three, one, I don't know, but it should have been there. It is such a horribly sexy film. And I think it really crystallizes everything that Campion has been doing in her career so far about this idea of erotics and longing and pretty much maybe ruining your life out of just desiring someone. I think I've spoken to quite a lot of people about this film who felt quite lukewarm on it when they first saw it and I really am curious to see if you guys also felt that way because I so I saw this in Venice 
and I did the skinny review of it and not to like cast aspersions on the quality of our journalism but I gave it four stars and I would now give it like 10 out of five and I think it really is a film and I've spoken to other people who kind of felt the same that just like haunts you like you come away from it and you're like oh okay yeah like I see like obviously it's very well made and then it just stays under your skin like all of the weird erotic tension between these two people um so probably just to rewind to say what it's about um so it's about these two brothers um who own a ranch in Montana and they're played by uh Jesse Plemons and Bendit Cumbach and Bendit Cumbach's character Phil is incredibly domineering incredibly unkind just a very mean person um and towards the beginning Jesse Plemons marries um a suicide widow who's played by Kirsten Dunst um, and brings her and her teenage son into the ranch and Phil does not react well um, and yeah it's just so grimy like you can feel the sweat and the dirt on people's skin um, it features some of my very camera work favorite camera work of the whole year um, the way that the camera is constantly like creeping in the background or it's like watching from a distance or it's circling the characters really cautiously. There's just so much dread constantly in the film that is both at odds and kind of entirely at home with just how horny it is. Um, and I was also so surprised and like so happily surprised um, by Benedict Cumberbatch's performance because I think it's incredible and I think he obviously had that kind of meteoric rise to sort of thespy stardom after Sherlock. And then I think he hit that point, which happens to a lot of actors, where they just become so famous that then they get in sucked into the marble machine and all of that kind of stuff. And they stop doing actually really good work because they are now in sort of, quote unquote, the more popular, blockbustery, whatever, um, side of things so they're not maybe doing stuff that's as challenging and so it was really exciting to see him doing something that it felt like it was making use of his often kind of quite thespy quite overblown performance and the way that he can always play like the cruelest but also most vulnerable person in the room and I thought he was brilliantly cast I, I will stop talking about it now because I've talked about it for hours, but I just loved it so much. <laughs> I, I loved it as well, and I must confess I hadn't seen it by the time I put my ballot in, and I would have put my it on the top ten, and then it would probably have snuck into the top ten at least, and I'm sure other people were in the same boat. Uh, what I loved about it is it's a film where you initially don't know who, who the protagonist is. That's what's quite interesting. Oh. Initially, it seems to be a love story between... Jesse, Jesse Plemons and Kristen Dunst. It's, it's going to be this sweet story about these two lonely people coming together. And then it slowly reveals it's going to be a bit of, it's about tension between Kristen Dunst and Cumberbatch because he hates her and it's about how he's going to break her. And that's what the film becomes about. And then it switches again and then it becomes about a kind of queer love story between Cumberbatch and... Cody with Smith McPhee. So it's like constantly shifting. It's totally in flux. It's constantly surprising. And what's so great about it is once it gets to the end, the film completely recalibrates in your head because once you get to the finish line, you realise, oh my God, the film is about something completely different. Even So every relationship you watched and every and each moment in that film, each kind of protagonist sort of clash 
it changes in your head. So it's a film that you have to kind of watch twice. You don't literally have to watch it twice, but it, once you watch it, completely changes. Um, and I love that. I love the a film that kind of totally lives beyond the screen. You know, the experience of watching it. And I agree, it is a kind of very horny, sexy film. But that horny sexiness isn't what the film's about, really, once it finishes. And it becomes a lot more twisted, a lot more dark. And, yeah, and, and I think it's a kind of Rorschach test as well, because some people don't seem to understand the ending, which I don't understand. I think the ending's very clear. But I think it, I think you can take a lot of weight. You can decide what the film's about once it ends, you know? It's like it's one of these films where you can really bring a lot of yourself to it, and that's what I loved about it. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's very rich. I think it's a film that's kind of, that kind of bubbles away at you, um, and, and I kind of want to rewatch it again. I haven't seen it yet, but I hear it's very good. <laughs> <laughs> we were looking at you so expectantly. Why haven't you seen it yet, Peter? Well, to be perfectly honest, we were on a toss-up between watching that and The King, and we decided to watch the Timothy Chalamet one instead. <laughs> you made the wrong decision. Yeah, that's really I upsetting. Mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, this, this is yeah, this is going to be around for a while, because I'm pretty sure this is going to win the Oscar. I am very confident it's going to win a lot of Oscars, actually. I'm pretty sure Jane Campion will finally get her Best Director Oscar, which is long overdue. Yes. Um, and I think it will win a lot of acting awards. I suspect Cumberbatch, but especially Cody McVeigh, who was the real kind of standout for me. He was such a surprise. I've seen him in a lot of things, uh, and I've always liked him as an actor, but he's so good in this, and his performance is so impressive, especially, like I say, in retrospect. It's so interesting yeah. to think back about what he's doing, and I love, like I say, I want to watch it again. To, to watch this young actor because he's doing so much but he's seeming so subtle and so he seems like he's, he's so incidental to the, the plot but actually he's the he's the main character he's like he's the protagonist yeah. and he's and he's in the background for most of it so that's that's why it's so fascinating and also I will very briefly fly the flag for Kirsten Dunst who I also feel has been like very very overlooked in the industry constantly and she is really incredible in this she's just so tremulous and frightened and always on edge um and I think I maybe wrote it in my review actually like the, kind of that bit because like you say you keep changing your understanding of what the film is and that bit where it's like the tension between them she has this almost like second Mrs. De Winter air of like being haunted and like dogged down by this horrible like hostile presence in her life and she is amazing, and I would really love her to finally get like her G's because she has been like one of our most interesting actresses for a really long time. Yes, and she's very good at playing drunk. It's very hard to play drunk on screen, and she's <laughs> so good at it. Like, uh, yeah, some very good drunk acting from uh, Kirsten Dunst. Uh, good, right? Do we want to talk about anything else, or are we happy to? I, I was going to say the one film that I really regret not putting in my top 10 is Barb and Star go to uh, Vista Del Mar. <laughs> I don't know if anybody saw this. It's an absolute masterpiece of comedy. <laughs> uh, I can I can rhapsodize about it if you want, or we can just leave it if you think we've got it. Enough. It sounds like you've got notes prepared. <laughs> I mean, not, not much. It's just, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is this was just um, a fun watch over Christmas. Uh because I love Kirsten Dunn, uh, not Kirsten Dunn, uh, Kirsten Wigg, um, you know, she's, she's my favourite comedian, and I was absolutely blown away by how good this was, you know, and like I say, comedies very rarely get a look in, especially cookie comedies like this, this is like daft, 
but it's like it's really moving and, and poignant as well. So it's about two middle-aged women who basically get involved in a ridiculous terror plot um, when a very pale woman called Sharon Fishman, Fisherman, who's also played by Kirsten Wig, decides to take revenge on this holiday resort she grew up in in Florida because she hates everyone there. And it's just wildly surreal, but it's also really romantic. It involves both women becoming romantically entangled with uh, Jamie Dornan, who's uh, Sharon Fisherman's <laughs> put-upon boyfriend. And he gives one of his best ever on-screen performances. Again, we're talking about, uh, I was talking about Belfast. Forget his performance in Belfast. This should be Oscar-nominated. He's so goofy, so funny. Uh, I should mention the film's also a musical, and he has one of the funniest song and dance numbers I've ever seen on screen. You know, the film is just full of visual invention, really kitsch visuals, kitsch gags. It's an absolute delight. And I think it's going to be one of those films that's just going to be a cult movie. You know, like, uh, I want to see this again and again. Um, and I really hope you guys go out and watch it on my recommendation. Because it's ace. Okay. <laughs> well, I actually, I have heard about it. Um, and I didn't realize it was a musical. So that yeah, there's lots me. of music in it, yeah. Much more intrigued. Okay, all right. I would like to rewrite the whole because I really did not like Belfast, so I would like to rewrite the whole Jamie Dornan Belfast extravaganza. Yeah, yeah, and this has been the year of musicals. There's been a lot, you know, Tick Tick Boom and West Side Story and uh, and the Heights, but this should be up there in that conversation. It's very good. So it sounds like Anna heats off to go and rewrite the story of Jamie Dornan. Jamie is going to start the Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar Oscar campaign and I apparently have to go and watch The Power of the Dog immediately. The Cine Skinny podcast was written and produced by Jamie Dunn, Anahit Barus, and me, Peter Simpson. Thanks so much for listening. You can get us collectively at The Skinny Mag on socials or on Twitter individually at Jamie Dunn Esquire, Anahit Ruse, and PTR. S-M-P-S-N respectively. It's just Peter Simpson with all the vowels taken out. If you like the pod, tell your friends and give us good reviews wherever you would usually do so. Thanks very much.